Welcome everyone to SaaScast, the podcast that talks you through the steps you need to future-proof your product, whether that's building the ultimate marketing team or taking your products global. Our guests will help you grow, scale up, and work smarter. Hi, Georg. Thank you so much for joining us on SaaScast today. Hi, Anthony. Thanks. It's great to be here. So before we get started today, then, with the main discussion, I think um, our listeners would just really benefit from hearing a little bit more about you. Um, your background and your kind of journey to your current position and also what it is kind of about um, this particular path, you know, in SaaS that's, that sort of fills you with excitement and drive. Yeah, uh, great. Thank you. Well, um, I have been in or around SaaS since 2007. So I started my career at Microsoft and was perhaps by some combination of luck and hard work in the right place at the right time and ended up being the first quota carrying person at Microsoft in Europe for uh, what is today Office 365. And it was called something else then. And we did these very early big deals, moving uh, people's exchange and SharePoint workloads into Microsoft's data centers in 2007, 2008. Back when the, the idea of moving big enterprise workloads to the cloud was was even more challenging than it is, you know, Mm -hmm. today. It's pretty accepted today. So it started for me then. And I I went to, after uh, really enjoying a few years at Microsoft doing that, and it scaled to Office 365, and there were thousands of people involved with it, um, to a small startup called Yammer, which was, uh, I think, Series B funded at the time um, Mm -hmm. with a team of folks in the US. Myself and two others met in a pub in London Bridge, and we founded the European team. And 18 months later, we had 85 people in a beautiful office in Shoreditch, and Microsoft acquired the company. So I found myself back again at Microsoft (laughs) with my old friends. And um, we had a very, very uh, good integration process. I spent a year being part of that and really enjoyed that, actually, Um, before going off again with some of the Yammer executives to a small video company where I spent just a few months that didn't form as large part of my story, but we were competing with Zoom at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and that was, it was, uh, you know, good learning experience. And then I went to Tesla, which was a little deviation from SaaS, but actually in terms of pace, um, had just as much going on as any software company of whatever size I've been involved with. So that was great fun. I, I ran first the UK, then Western Europe for Tesla. And uh, did that for just over four years before going to my first CEO position in an education technology business where we did child safety, um, which was a company called Smoothwall based in the UK, backed by private equity, which um, we sold in 2021 to an Australian business listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. And I'm still a non-exec director there, so I've stayed involved, which is quite fun. And that business was called Family Zone, although it's rebranded itself now to Coria with a Q. Um, so Coria does child safety technology right around the world, big in the US, big in Europe, and of course in Australia as well. And um, and so I found myself entering the language technology industry in early 2022, which is mm. my first time involved in language technology. Um, Phrase is also backed by private equity, so there's a, a sort of common thread there and a second time CEO position for me. And uh, what do I love about SaaS and te- frankly, technology in general? It, it just is forever changing. I mean, I, I love that it's different year on year. I love that we're pushing boundaries um, of technology. Mm-hmm. I, you know, some sometimes to my detriment, enjoy fiddling with new things. Um, and, you know, my kids call me a gadget man because I've got, you know, health monitors on both wrists. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I just, I just, you know, I'm, I love to geek out on that, but I also love the way these businesses run. They're very customer centric. You know, we're, we sell and and we're in renewal cycles constantly because they're subscription businesses. And I think that drives a kind of customer focus and orientation, which I really enjoy. Um, it means that people like me don't just sit behind a desk and we get out and we meet customers and, and that's, that's important. Um, so yeah, that's my drive. I, I get to work with really smart people on some really cool technology with an amazing customer base. I mean, I'm very lucky to do what I do. Have you always been um, fascinated by technology then since you were a kind of a student or younger? Yes. Yeah, I, I was um, a, I was uh, always into computers when I was a kid. I never really learned to program. I mean, I tried, but it wasn't really my strength. I remember doing some sort of easy, basic type stuff. I thought I could predict the weather by looking out the window and taking a record every day and then writing <laughs> some basic rules based uh <laughs> that, that didn't go, get me very far but um uh i remember writing websites when i was at university again i wasn't particularly good at it but i wrote the website for our, our summer ball uh, at university and things like that so it's it started young yeah for sure uh, you say it wasn't very impressive i mean just trying that out is pretty impressive i think at that age um but yeah it's great that you come with that perspective of you know having seen it uh, having been here a long time as well and having seen it evolve um, and having seen how, like you said, I love how you said that SaaS is kind of, um, it's put the customer more in focus, I think is is one of the great things about it. One of the things I love about it as well is I, I think that it's kind of um, brought in a kind of diversity of talent, I think, that perhaps wasn't there before because, you know, there's so many different industries and seeing the potential in this in SaaS, I think. And, and with that, I think you get people... You know, we need our kind of techie people, obviously, but you get people who come from more humanitarian backgrounds, uh, education, like you said. And I just think the more talent, the better, really. I'll give, um, I'll give you two examples. When I was at Yammer, I hired a young woman who was um, had been a professional ballerina or on that track before an injury <laughs> curtailed that career. And I remember when we interviewed her, I said, what this young woman can't teach us about hard work isn't worth knowing. And um and we've just recently at phrase hired someone who until not long ago was a carpenter and <laughs> we trained. we're not his first job in SAS, we're his second job in SAS. but you know it i think it goes to your point that it can attract a broader um yeah. talent pool definitely yeah that's fascinating okay so let's let's go into our our discussion today then and and i want to refer back um as a point of reference to an article that you recently wrote for us um, at Future of SaaS on uh, localization, uh, which I, which I know is the um, is what your that's what your solution provides, isn't it? Essentially, um, and I was just wondering, um, can you elaborate on the mechanisms through which localization contributes to improve financial performances? Because we're always talking about kind of growth, and you see, and obviously you went into it in the article, but I think it would be great to sort of elaborate on it further. Like, what is it about it that makes has the potential to make SaaS companies more profitable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think a lot of the uh, value drivers for localization focus on uh, two areas, product and marketing, as I think mm -hmm. we'll explore in some um, of the conversation today. I actually believe that there's some untapped potential outside of those areas, but particularly around kind of growth and go-to-market, it's really one of the areas that localization is most mm -hmm 
often thought about. So it might be about how one localizes one's website and the shopping cart mm. and the product descriptions and the product manuals and all of that stuff that helps a customer to understand the value that one is actually providing and then to help support and service that. And we've done some research ourselves um, with, or we've cribbed other people's research. So for example, Charge B, which is mm. a uh, sort of pricing SaaS business that has a lot of very good data on tens of thousands mm. of SaaS companies. They uh, produced a report recently with uh, Price Intelligently, which states, quote, companies with deeper localization frameworks grow at a higher rate than those who don't. It's pretty mm-hmm. black and white. So growth, I'd say um, some other data we have from Harvard Business Review and other CSA research and IMSI and others says things like um, uh, customers are more like, so more than half of customers are likely to um, prize the opportunity to obtain information in a language of their own choice more highly than price. Mm-hmm. So actually mm-hmm. more focused on being able to consume the content and language they understand than necessarily paying the lowest price, which must be music to CFOs here. Three quarters of consumers say they're more likely to purchase the same brand again, so repurchase, if the customer carries in their language. More than 80% of customers say they're more likely to buy a product in the first place. So you've got conversion metrics, repeat purchase metrics, and then um, customer service concerns uh, is another area, like are people getting the care that they want? And then the final metric I thought was interesting from CSA research says that even very large companies are leaving as much as 54% of their total addressable market untouched because they're mm. under addressing the opportunity of localization. And you only have to look at some very large brands, very large software companies that, that either only sell in the US or only sell mm-hmm. in English or the US and one other language. So I was talking to one multi, multi-billion dollar software business recently, which mm. uh, is in English and Japanese and not wow. in French and German and Spanish and Italian and Chinese and all the other languages that might, you know, open their markets up. So what's holding people back then, do you think? Like, why are people not capitalizing on this? And, and you know, are there, are, is, are, is there some good logic behind it? Are there certain companies that perhaps wouldn't, it wouldn't be worth their while or? Well, do you know what? I think a lot of companies that grow in the U.S., start their business in the US. And so perhaps Mm -hmm. naturally they become quite large in one language. And so, you know, fair enough. Companies that grow in Europe often become multilingual and localize more quickly. However, I think um, that gives context rather than an explanation. I think business executives underestimate the complexity. So it's not unusual for a business executive to say, you know, at the end of a process, right now that we've done all this work of developing this new product or marketing campaign or, or whatever it might be, now can we have that in seven languages, please? We want to launch, mm-hmm. you know, next, next quarter. At which point, anyone who knows anything about localization sort of rolls their eyes because it just isn't that that straightforward. So I think the complexity mm-hmm. is underestimated. Um, I do think the opportunity is perhaps underestimated as well. That you know, it, you can't you can't just roll out in um, English language and, uh, you know, go to other countries around the world and expect that consumers are going to, you know, to um, uh, engage with what you're doing. So I think there's a bit of underappreciation and uh, undersimplification. And then the final thing I think is um, that, as I say, a lot of the focus historically has been on these kind of growth metrics, which are important. There are other areas of untapped opportunity that executives could be looking at and I think might need a little, um, you know, pointing in the right direction. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So let's go a little bit more into this complexity then, because I think um, some people, when they hear localization, they might just think, what is that translation? 
You know, is yeah. that what we're talking about here? What What is the difference with localization? What do we mean when yeah. we talk about that? So, so translating is the straightforward act of taking a set of words and directly translating them. So mm-hmm. um, if you were translating the phrase, it's raining cats and dogs into mm-hmm. another language, you would just literally translate the word. Mm-hmm. Localizing is to understand that that has a specific meaning and there might be mm-hmm. a reasonable alternative. And I, I actually, there's a fantastic Wikipedia page, if you Google it, where they provide equivalent expressions to raining cats and dogs for mm-hmm. lots of other languages. Mm-hmm. And there's all sorts, um, you know, in Estonian, raining as if poured from a bucket or raining like from a beanstalk um i'm just going down the list here in french raining nails in 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 um <laughs> in german raining young dogs like raining puppies i mean i suppose it's related to cats and dogs but it's not the same thing so i yeah. you know there's, there's quite a lot of funny ones here but the point is that's what localization is um, there's another layer to this, which is globalization, which is actually the act of preparing your um, your software, for example, to, to be ready to uh, uh, adopt this. So one of the reasons of complexity, for example, might be that um, historically software businesses might hard code a language into the user interface. So on a button, it hard codes the, the you know, the work, the text on the mm-hmm. button. Um, now, what you need to do actually is have a variable there so you can call that variable from a table according to the language selection that you make. And if you've if you've written a million lines of code with hard coding, to go back and change all of that is you know potentially quite hard work. So that comes uh, that's another layer for people to consider. But yeah, hopefully that helps explain localization. Yeah, definitely. I love what you're saying about the different phrases and how they don't translate as well. I think I think it's so important, isn't it? With as well, I mean. What we talk about a lot on Future Assassin at the moment, customer success is really popular as a subject. I suppose like the kind of proactive um, customer service as opposed to kind of reactive. And this seems like in a way, a kind of an example of that, like proactive proactivity in a way, like how do you provide exceptional service to customers? It's not just about, yeah, pressing a translate button, but I suppose understanding them in their culture as well. I mean, I suppose with the true localization strategy as well, you'd have to become a little bit attuned and aware of cultural differences as well. And, and as well, you know, it would have to be a completely different way of thinking almost sometimes, I think, in certain cultures. Well, that's right. So it goes does go beyond language, it goes to imagery, for example. So if you are mm-hmm. um, using imagery in the Middle East, then um, you might portray clothing and dress in a different way to imagery mm-hmm. in South America and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So it is more than language. It goes to tone and formality, for example. You know, some mm-hmm. markets are more formal. Um, and, uh, and some languages, of course, use different vocabulary, depending on yes. the formality. Uh, um, some languages have very different vocabulary depending on your use of plurals. So, um, uh, and genders, you know, not like some languages have more than two genders um, hard coded in the language, leaving, you know, any politics aside. It's just that there, there are so many different ways of expressing these concepts than we are used to in English, which is relatively binary in many respects. Um, yeah. I, I was told, I don't speak Russian, but I was told, for example, in English, we talk about um, one and many, but the Russian uh, language has a concept of a sort of middle ground, a few, which then actually repeats itself. So you have, you know, um, 
like how to explain it you have uh as you go through the decades 10 20 30 40 you have like 10 and a bit or 10 and a few or 10 and many i'm probably explaining that very badly and again it was sort of explained to me yeah yeah (laughs) there are different concepts yeah and i think it's definitely certain cultures prefer a more formal approach i think um business agreements others like you know i don't know if you're talking to more of a kind of silicon valley type environment I think probably then, you know, it's become more normalized now, hasn't it? To sort of treat the customer like a friend almost, you know, is that kind of atmosphere as well. So there's so many different things you have to take into account, I think. It's really interesting. Um, So you were talking about diversification across different markets and in in this article. So I was wondering, can you share some specific strategies for CFOs and CEOs how can you effectively diversify your market presence? So there's um there's maybe a few ways for people to think about it. So one obvious one is simply to open abroad, but I would describe that as growing your audiences because that can be abroad or at home. So many uh, countries have large diaspora populations. Um, the UK has many diaspora populations. Uh, the US, well, I think. Spanish may even have overtaken English as the number one spoken language in the US. In Mm. Canada, there are multiple official languages. In Belgium, there are multiple official languages and so on. So the the first thing I'd say is language is about expanding your audience beyond the Mm. first language you begin in, which Mm. can, of course, also then take you abroad, but it may even just expand your audience in the countries you're already in. Um, the, the second thing that can happen there is that you start picking up an audience of, of from that diaspora abroad that you didn't actually necessarily aim to target in the first place. It's just that they have seen that you offer your service in their language and they will therefore go to you in the place that they are now in because the Internet opens it up globally. Um, I'd say so growth is a clear one that is, um, is important in terms of geographic revenue growth and also mm-hmm. um diversifying the product portfolio there are some other not perhaps less obvious examples so let's talk about hiring talent if you want to hire talent from around the world and then you want to train that talent and you are only doing so in one language you're limiting your talent pool even if you're using one of the major languages Mm -hmm. a great example of this is one of our engineering company customers who they do um, lifts and elevators and things like that so they send field service engineers to repair these things in 70 plus countries around the world and they currently only um, provide all that material in one language in english Mm. and so if they are hiring a local based field service engineer in kuala lumpur or rio de janeiro or I don't know, you know, Quebec. They're they're insisting that well, they're, they they are limiting themselves to people who are English language speakers, and uh, and if you could open that up to local language speakers, then both the CFO, the VP of Field Service Engineering, and the Chief People Officer are all going to be very happy at having a more diverse, broader, and probably lower cost talent pool to be able to to go to. So it's kind of an interesting, non obvious example, um, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, th- I like that as well. We're going back again to diversifying the talent pool. I think that's something that goes hand in hand with um, with remote work as well these days. I think that's another. We're gonna we're gonna get on in a bit to like sort of the future of SaaS tech as well. And I was wondering, like, I think that's a great example how something like what you're talking about localization that people might not have thought of could go hand in hand with other developments like um, remote work or AI 
or something like that. You know, it's sort of how you can achieve synergy behind all these things. You know, now maybe you've got someone working in, I don't know, an office in in South Africa who happens to be the best person for the job whom you wouldn't have found, you know, 20 or 25 years ago because the work culture was just so different. I think that's really interesting as well. Absolutely. And then the the learning and development support that you can give people as well, because I mean, there are countless studies that tell us what's already, I think, obvious, which is that one learns better in one's native language. And so if we can, um, you know, localize the sales materials, the management training materials, the onboarding materials, then I think we're going to have people ramp up faster. I think we're going to have better managers, drive higher employee retention rates, um, and people are going to feel like their careers are supported in a way that isn't going to be equally true if we're only doing everything in a single language yeah certainly i think so i think um yeah and there probably have been instances in the past i think of of um you know a language barrier and you know creating blocks for internal communication i'd imagine so it's great that we sort of have these solutions in place now where we can start to get around that because I, like you said you know um there's the, the you're not necessarily going to find the best talent for your job for whatever role you're offering where you are you know it's it's crazy in a way that you would think that you know out of all the people in the world that you could potentially find one quote nearby you know it's yeah. sort of like the world is big you know and now we have it all open to us yes um it's fascinating really yeah um so let's talk a little bit about customer retention uh and customer loyalty in particular we talk a lot about in, in future SaaS about retention and how retention is uh often a, a cheaper uh, strategy um, than acquisition uh, and it's kind of um, I suppose it's the key to achieving like kind of sustainable growth rather than having a kind of leaky bucket kind of growth right so let's talk about localization then in in, in relation to this what do you think is the kind of effect that that it has on people when they see that a brand you know has this these things in place to communicate with them like what do you think is going to be the effect well, I think it's I think it's very important. If you go to Asia and you're mm -hmm. only in the English language, you're not going to get nearly as far as if you can provide um, sales, uh, marketing, of course, to start with, but then also help center training materials, certifications, um, mm -hmm. partner channel, you know, materials in a local language. And so um, yeah, I was in Japan in March. It was my first trip to the country, and we were hosted by our our Japanese um, uh, general manager for Asia, and he, you know, it was a wonderful experience. And he explained to me that only one percent of Japanese speak English, and so you know, it was just quite striking, really. And then if you go to uh, other markets around the world, maybe there's a greater percentage of of, of people that speak English, but um, nevertheless, you you are going to be limiting yourself if you only do it in that one language, and it's going to feel like this is a visitor. It's not going to feel like this is a company that has invested mm -hmm. and is is here for the long haul. So when it comes to retention, if people are making selections about, you know, is this frictionless? Is this easy? Or am I having to work at this? And does this company feel like it's invested in my country? Are they going to stick around? You know, they haven't even made the effort to translate the content. If, I think that really speaks a lot to um, people when they're making those types of decisions. You know what I'm reminded of? Maybe this is way off base, but I'm thinking of like how, you know, how when you get ads, in the on the television or, or even on you know if you're watching youtube or something that have been brought over to the uk yeah. and you can tell it's an american ad yes but they've dubbed it with british accents 
Yes. And yeah. that's really, really interesting. And and apparently I, I saw some research on that that said that, however falsely, so there's a bit of a prejudice in some people's minds that they think that if they if they're not hearing it not just in their language, but with the accent, they somehow don't deem it as trustworthy. <laughs> somehow, yeah. you know. I, yeah. I, I think that's absolutely right. Um and if you go to, you know, we're yeah. in this country, of course, in the UK, we we mostly do get like local language advertisements, except in the case you just mentioned where it's US coming over. But if you go to the continent, they're you know, they're getting a lot of English or US, which is yeah. like just straightforward, dubbed across, and the voices and the lips don't make any sense at all. So it's um uh, you know, it's even worse outside of our experience here. And it does erode trust absolutely yeah it's interesting that something that we've always kind of known i feel like it's interesting how like often these like marked old marketing principles sometimes we sort of it takes a while to reintegrate them but i feel like the the old truths usually are true you know they usually they usually hold out you know they usually survive i think Uh, (laughs) and and i think like instinctively people will know that business executives will know that i think there's maybe two reasons that we you know that we've not talked well one we've sort of talked about and one we haven't why why people don't just get it right first time every time but the first one is probably because they underestimate the complexity and so at the last minute Mm -hmm. they're saying just do something and the second Mm -hmm. thing is it's historically been perhaps too expensive to localize all the content so companies have been you know, selective about what types of content they localize. And this is where I think the technology is really changing things dramatically through mm. machine translation in particular, through artificial intelligence, which which really does change the game in terms of um, driving down the costs and opening up the types of content for which the economic hurdle, uh, you know, is now achievable in terms of localizing and building it out. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So something that was perhaps not a worthwhile investment a while ago is becoming worthwhile because of new technology because it's relatively cheaper now it's something that's worth taking the risk because obviously there's always going to be some kind of risk isn't there with something like yeah. this i think yeah very, very much so i think um a lot of large companies will have a dedicated localization team mm-hmm. now that team will have technology like ours which they do to manage these types of complex processes and they do it at scale often millions and millions tens of millions of words a year um but then what can still happen is that divisions or you know teams that are spread around the world um either for a particular piece of content it's too expensive or too slow to go to the central mm-hmm. team so they either do nothing and do it in you know they don't localize it or they might you know contribute to a shadow localization budget where they go off to a local freelancer and just get it done quietly on the side that happens all the time so just like shadow it exists shadow localization also exists in in the large companies and often the central teams we speak to tell me about all the you know the the time and effort they go to to sort of grab these outliers and bring them back to the center now technology like ours and some things we've released relatively recently actually make it much cheaper and much easier for even folks on the periphery if you like to get high quality machine translation through and therefore they no longer need to find workarounds or do nothing they can actually inexpensively get a great outcome and that's so i think that sort of thing really makes a difference as well Definitely. One thing that's just occurred to me, Georg, is um, I'm thinking about like brand presence now. And what I was thinking about is how I suppose organizations want their brand to be somewhat consistent. Um, You know how like, I don't know, again, I'm referring to things that are non-tech, 
but like how how like McDonald's has the golden arch, right? You know, like it's sort of like it, it wants you want to have a consistent image, don't you? Right across the world, how do you how does that fit with localization then? What adaptations do you have to make when sort of translating your brand abroad whilst also achieving that work, that sort of consistency? Yeah. Um, I wonder if there have you know of any case studies or anything where like you know where there have been challenges with that kind of thing. So. Well, it's it's a it's an incredibly important point because of course if you if you um don't have some sort of standards or control or do localization properly. Mm-hmm. You know, what sort of thing might happen? Well, people might just go into Google Translate or the internet, you know, and and or, or their you know friend uh, from school who speaks a little smattering of some language and say, "Can you help me with this?" And what happens is you get these very poor quality translations, and and mm. as a result of poor quality translation, you get poor quality localization, and then that can be incredibly embarrassing. Um, it can can also happen algorithmically, and there was a, mm-hmm. a, a horrible case of this with uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken recently in Germany, where they had a sort of algorithmic approach where they would send out um, uh, social media congratulations for public holidays, but then one of the public holidays in Germany was actually a commemoration for some of the events of the 20th century, and so KFC suddenly sent out you know a, a cel- social media present uh, celebration for one of the most terrific you know nights pre of the 1930s in germany but you know clearly not the sort of thing that a human in their right mind would have um done but the machine just you know followed the rules and didn't apply intelligence to it and and so that was a pretty nasty case and they had to come and apologize and say look you know deeply sorry for all the offense that we did cause um so you know it is important to do these things with a bit of thoughtfulness and write and use the correct technology. And then, of course, you can do these things with high quality and at scale. Um, but, <clears throat> but as much as we're a software business and we're purely a software SaaS business, um, we still believe there is a role for the human being, even if artificial intelligence is going to reduce the percentage of intervention by humans. Um, it's also my belief that generative AI and so on is going to increase the volumes of machine translated content dramatically. And so, um, you know, the, the the sort of absolute amount of intervention by humans um, may may be maintained, even if the percentage reduces. Yeah, it's, well, let's let's get into it then. Um, we were gonna, I was gonna start opening up to um, future of SaaS tech developments, but I think we've arrived at AI already. Like everyone invariably does. Because how can you have any conversation about technology without getting into AI now? Um, so yeah, I mean, I just want to know your, if you'd elaborate further on your opinion, like what you hear all the horror stories and that, and you've just told me a horror story, I think, <laughs> right there. Um, what is, what is the role of AI then in the future of technology? Is it, is it to kind of augment what we have already? Um, what do you see it? How do you see it playing a big role? Is it going to touch everything? What areas can it not touch? Let's get into it. Yeah, I think I think AI will touch everything. Um, I think uh, clearly some of the recent advances have been changing how people perceive the potential for AI dramatically. And so suddenly, through ChatGPT um, mm. and and you know other generative AI, whether it's image or music and so on, people are saying, "Well, you know, this is extraordinary, mind blowing. What a cool demo." Um, 
I think there's been already a little bit of a hype um, cycle there in that there was a, a tremendous amount of excitement and nervousness around that. And some of that has cooled um, even at, well, per, because I think what people are seeing is that these large language models do some really extraordinary things. However, they can't be left alone. You, you know, you can't say to the large language model, um, please, uh, you know, come up with a new um, tagline for this new product idea. Please write all of the copy. Please disseminate that copy in all the languages. You just can't trust it to do all that in uh, well, re- almost at any stage, right? Like, and and one of the reasons is that they are um, highly probabilistic, meaning you can press the generate button ten times and get ten different versions. So there's mm. no guarantee that the first version is going to be good. And if you then ask mm-hmm. the machine mm-hmm. to do it natively in 50 languages on the first click of the button, well, there's a, you know, you have no idea unless you speak those 50 languages whether or not it's actually done it correctly. So I think generative AI is incredibly exciting. It's a huge productivity boost. I think that's what we're going to see with AI um, in lots mm. and lots of ways, whether it's in predicting the next word I want to type on my phone so that I have mm. to click. You know, the keyboard fewer times that's a that's a form of ai um through to you know um uh changing completely the nature of internet search which it already is doing for me um but I, at the same time for business purposes it needs a tremendous amount of control so we've solved some problems and we've introduced whole new ones which are really kind of fascinating so yeah largely it's productivity largely that means um People can do more with less. It also means people with, in the nicest possible way, less talent can do more. You know, you no longer need to be a world-class software engineer to write world-class mm-hmm. code. You could write mediocre code and have the copilot improve it for you. So mm-hmm. that, you know, that's pretty interesting. And I think that will create some, um, some um, uh, perhaps flattening of the curve of salaries, for example, which might have been extremely weighted to the top end for you know, the the top 0.1% of software engineers, that might get sort of flattened out a little bit. Um, on the other hand, uh, I don't think it suddenly, you know, I don't think it suddenly like flattens it completely. But um, uh, same thing could be said in a number of different areas around any business. So it's a productivity enhancer for uh, uh, for all of us. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting to me as well. I, I think that somebody mentioned to me that you know, people talk about productivity, it can obviously get more and more things out. And I thought, well, there's a concern, isn't there? I think with some people that like, it will lead to great productivity, but less thoughtfulness, I think is that is the worry. I suppose maybe a counter argument to that could be that maybe it allows those really high skilled people that you were talking about, maybe it allows them time away a little bit to think. Yeah. Um, because like you said, maybe they're not coding as often, maybe they can come up with more strategies. They can yeah. think more and they can think about the future more. I think one of the things in the working day, maybe that stops people is, is just having to do a lot of tiresome kind of like admin stuff that really is below their skill, their skill level, perhaps, you know? Yeah. I think you fit on something very important. Um, I really like how you put it, that it, that it might result in sort of, how do you say, doing more, but think but in a less thoughtful way. Yes. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that's absolutely the risk. And, and probably mm-hmm. in the early waves of adoption, there will be lots of that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I think we'll adapt. I, I tend not to believe the, 
you know, I'm 42, so I've, I've been, you know, in SaaS for 20 years. And as a result, I've seen a few sort of promises of productivity enhancements, which mean we're all going to have to sort of work less because we can do so much more. Um, and actually, that's not been my experience. I don't think any of us have worked less over the last 20 years. Um, <laughs> potentially, it's gone the other way, right? Suddenly, work comes with you everywhere. But what I think it has done is allow us to, to to your point, work on the higher value stuff because it has it doesn't take us so long to do mundane things. And so I think I think that's what we'll see with this too, which is that if um, even top quality engineers are now able to write, you know, I don't know, a thousand lines of code a day instead of a hundred or whatever the right you know um, metric might be, what what they'll do is they'll be able to step back and look at that thousand lines in a way that previously they could only look at 100 and they'll be able to see a sort of bigger picture. And then I mm -hmm. think the technology will also do a lot of the analysis to help them understand the implications of what you've just done are. And that's where the thoughtfulness will come back in and that's why the salary curve won't be completely flattened because the, the most creative and brilliant minds will still be able to see things others don't. Um, but, you know, I do think we'll see, I'll give you, um, I'll give you, you know, maybe a, uh, one one example from some of our customers we have several customers in the travel booking industry let's say mm -hmm. um and so as a result they have lots of reviews and review sites and a lot of that kind of user generated content is now machine translated it simply doesn't need a human being to touch it at all right and what sometimes they will do is they'll use workflow to write rules to say well if this particular piece of content gets you know above a certain threshold in terms of views then let's have a human being just do a quick double check um mm. and you could see that being applied to all sorts of things like help center articles frankly even news stories um which is to say let's build some thresholds in here for machine only machine with a quick review uh human takes the lead and uh, and build that across large parts of our workflow and that's where i think there are quite important things here ai on its own is going to generate actually enormous complexity because it's going to generate so much content. Mm -hmm. We're going to be able to do so much more with less, and that will ultimately lead to chaos unless you have some really good workflow that says, mm -hmm. you know, I've set a threshold for trusting that to the machines, another threshold for some workflow that involves a human being, another threshold for human only. We're doing quality checks at every stage, which have to be automated, but they need tweaking. And you know, I'm sort of bouncing around topics a little bit here, but you get to things like um, machine machine learning operations, right? It's a big area because data quality and model drift, these are terms people are going to hear more and more about. Um, so, you know, if, if just a quick definition on something like model drift, short, like an um, idiot's guide is, you ask it the same question three days in a row and it gives you increasingly worse answers. Mm -hmm. And that has been happening across even some of the very big models, right? They they drift and the answers get worse over time. Okay. Why does that happen? I don't well, quite understand that. Yeah. So a lot of mod so models are trained on the data you give them. So right. if you have a very specific, very narrow data set, you'll probably yeah. get much less drift and very high quality answers. If you train a large language model on, you know, all of the internet. And then those large language models start also contributing to the internet. Now they're being trained on a model which they have been contributing to, which means you get these echoes, this feedback. Right. And then I what see. can happen is 
like the internet isn't always right. You know, pe- people can, I mean, there's there's obviously disinformation or misinformation, which can be deliberate or accidental. These things get picked up and incorporated into the answers. And then you get these echoes of, of false answers coming through. And then um, you, I'll give you an example I saw recently, which I think has been fixed because it, it became a quick meme. Someone asked uh, ChatGPT, if it takes one, you know, the old, I don't know if you've heard the saying before, but if it takes one woman nine months to make a baby, how long does it take nine women to make a baby? Mm-hmm. Chat GPD answered, one month. <laughs> right, okay. um, now, I think that was subsequently fixed, or it depended a little bit on how you asked the question. And that's the other thing, is you and I might, might think we're asking the same question, but ask slightly, ask in slightly different ways. And it sort of, you know, triggers the AI to give slightly different answers and we won't necessarily know why. Yeah, yeah. I found as well, because I've used ChatGPT a fair bit, experimented with it. And I feel like it, it's it is crap in, crap out, really. You know, it's like it it's all about what to use a crude expression. It's all about like what you if you tell it like what it's sort of so say, for example, you're putting some content out there. If you tell them what the purpose is and what the target audience is and who who's going to be seeing this and what you want them to do exactly when they see it. Um, I find that you get better answers as well. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's it's people I think who complain about it sometimes are people who don't really know how to use it. I think there's definitely a bit of a skill to to learning how to how to input the information. Yeah. Um, and I think it's actually it isn't too dissimilar in a way to telling, like if you were telling like, a, I don't know, a marketer to do a marketing task, you couldn't just say, write this copy. You'd have to tell them, yeah, they'd have to know what was the purpose of it. What do you want people to do with this? Um, so I think in a way, people sometimes treat this software as kind of like a foreign thing or a new thing. But the way you the way you put information in, I actually think I found it's not that dissimilar from how you would communicate with a person. <laughs> Interestingly, yeah, you know? it's, it's absolutely right. And it's sometimes when when people say to me, for example, yeah. um, if you're in the world of localization and these generative AIs can can write copy in fifty languages natively, doesn't that you know mean that localization is not required anymore? And I'd say, no, actually, it's, it's almost the opposite because in the past, a human being would have prompt um, briefed a copywriter who would write yeah. a version that would then be translated. But before it was mm-hmm. translated, it would be checked. So the copywriter would say, are you happy with this? Mm-hmm. Now what's happening is a human being is briefing a machine that is natively producing content in 50 languages, mm-hmm. which means, are you checking the 50 languages? Um, you might check the original language and say, oh, I don't like that. So now can you, the machine, retranslate them into the other 50 languages and sort of go that way? But actually what you're doing is you're just basically shifting the problem along and actually making it bigger, particularly if you're using generative AI because you want to do more faster, which means that any mistake that you make is going to get amplified. And machines make mistakes at a scale even faster than humans make mistakes, of course, when they make them, which is kind of interesting. So, um, so yeah, we've got definitely into the the philosophy of it, uh, but it's, a, it's an exciting time. That's the thing. We're definitely going through the sort of an ex, you know if there's an s curve to this we're going through an acceleration period now and how we all learn and think about this and adopt it i i think that as well i mean i think we've gotten past the fear stage a bit actually i think at one point we were in the fear stage and now i think people are getting quite excited about it again yeah 
um, which I think is probably the, 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 case, the case with any development. I mean, you will know because you've been in technology for such a long time. I think with any new development that comes in, there's the fear stage, isn't there? Which is just yeah. the natural human response. Um, you know, like like the Stanley Kubrick film with the sort of apes looking at the big monolith, you know, kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like when it arrives, yes. that kind yeah. of thing. Um, and then, you know, there's kind of the, then there's the excitement stage when you realize what you can do with it or like, you know, see, seeing fire for the first time. Um, and, and I think that, sorry, go on. I think that's right. But do you know what? I think it would be great for the audience to, to take away is I'd say, uh, do all the pub conversation around, you know, how it's going to change the world, but then bring it back to the tiny, small incremental improvements you can put in your workflow or your product today. Um, and that th then you're going to get real um, uh, value today. A simple example. We work with one of the big ride hailing apps, right? I can't mm -hmm. say the name, but a big ride hailing app. And mm -hmm. not all the drivers have English as a first language. And they can measure the difference between uh, uh, deploying two drivers in their native language and to the customers in their native language mm -hmm. versus not in terms of repeat engagement. And in a highly competitive space, supply-demand market, like ride hailing apps, you know, getting a few extra percentage points of loyalty from the drivers. And that is a really simple, and it's machine translation, really yeah. simple um, real world example of how you drive loyalty. And that's, you know, so I'd say to the audience, do all the thinking in the blue sky and get ready. And, you know, because it's important because we are on an S curve. So if you put your head in the sand, you'll be way behind a few months down the line, et cetera, et cetera. But there are practical real world things you can do today with, with language and AI. That's great to hear. Yeah. So before we before we round this off, then, is there anything else that you think is a major development that is perhaps a little bit unsung or being eclipsed by AI a little bit at the moment? I suspect we'll see um, security be a major area again uh, over okay. the next uh, few, because with AI and generative AI comes um False fake, you know, fake news and uh, deep fake and all that kind of stuff. Deep fakes, yeah, that's scary. <laughs> so I think I think we'll see deep fakes be used for um, nefarious purposes. I'm sure they already are, quite frankly. Oh, yeah. uh, and uh, and so I suspect there'll be a, a second wave associated with that, uh, sort of around authenticity. But, I suppose that with the with the risk that comes with these things, that forces new advancements, doesn't it? That's what you hope is that like the risk that comes with one development pushes the evolution of another in a way. Yes, it does. And security will be a good thing because if people can trust it, they'll mm -hmm. use it. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely going to be a great thing for SaaS companies, I think, is, is that improved. Yeah, definitely. And especially when you're thinking about customer trust, how important it is now for SaaS companies to create that trust yeah. um, with, the, with the individual and create that relationship. Yeah, um, it's indispensable, isn't it? It is. I, think. I mean, and we've all had those, you know, phishing emails. And one of the ways you know it's a phishing email is because it's written really badly. So, like another simple example, poor quality localization just turns people off. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, well, this has been really great, Georg. Thank you. Um, before we round off today, um, if people want to reach out to you, um, more insights, how should they reach you? Uh, email works. So first name dot last name. So Georg, G-E-O-R-G dot E-L-L at mm. phrase dot com. I'm also mm. at Mr. Georg L on Twitter. Um, so either of those is pretty good. Or write to me on LinkedIn. 
yeah, sure, definitely. I'm sure people are really going to benefit from this. Um, thank you so much. Um, it was great talking to you today. And I think this has been a really vital discussion. Thanks, Anthony. I appreciate it. It's fun. Thank you for joining us on this episode of SaaScast. Please join us next time for more top insights from the leading minds in SaaS.